0: Hello and welcome back to a fresh season of Garmology, Season 6, starting off with Episode 127. I know, it's mad, isn't it? So what is new this season, you're asking? Well, to be honest, more great guests. We'll be continuing as before, as you like it. Also, I have added a Patreon feature now, so those that wish to support the podcast can do so. The extra features for members are a bit of a work in progress. I'm not entirely sure what I can offer, but I'd love to hear your suggestions. What would you like? Would you like to get in touch, chat, video chats, ask questions? I don't know. Let me know. No worries though if you're not in a position to support, or just don't want to support. All the regular episodes will still be fully available as before. And remember, if you enjoy this one, there are 126 that came before it. So, without any more chittering chat from me, let's get into today's episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Today's episode is more about the making of clothes than usual, maybe. But we'll get to that. So my guest today is Justine. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Hi, um, I'm Justine Aldersey-Williams. I'm a natural textile dyer and founder of the Northern England Fibre Shed.
0: Now, some of my guests will be sort of slowly nodding a bit now thinking Fibre shed, Yeah. Uh, others will be thinking, now that all sounds pretty strange. Shall we start talking a bit about Fibre and I'd love to hear more about your background and how you got into yeah, it. Yeah
1: okay well I um, I started a business called The Wild Diary in 2015. I'd previously studied fashion a, a long long time ago and kind of came to the conclusion that it was a, a system of oppression <laughs> for, particularly for women and boycotted it and I didn't really expect myself to be journeying back into it in the way that I have done. I I, I graduate, well I, I left fashion for a long time and I was actually a yoga teacher and that brought me back into my creative practice. I returned, I did an MA and I had a much keener connection and awareness of environmental issues because of this practice that induces this sense of connection and reverence to life so my return was more about natural textile dyeing I previously specialized in um, screen printing with very toxic you know plasticized inks and came back to it and you know everything could change everything had become digitized I, I, I learned digital surface pattern design but I wanted a tandem practice that really got me moving and outside having been a, a very kind of mobile yoga teacher for such a long time. So the two worlds converged at that point point. Um, and I was very keen to try and contribute in whatever way I could to helping the, um, the climate crisis. I learned of a a natural dyer called Rebecca Burgess in California, and she had founded an organisation called Fibre Shed, and their strapline is local colour. Sorry, (laughs) the strapline that I've said a million times. (laughs) Local fibre, local dye, local labour. So it's a part of this kind of growing movement towards localism that recognises the exploitation that becomes prevalent in lengthy opaque global supply chains and it really seeks to tackle that through this seemingly simple strap line um, based in growing fibres and dyes rather than mining them from fossil fuels and not just that but growing them in a way that is regenerative to soil and biodiversity and the people who rely on it So they really present this very beautiful potential for our clothing to heal us and the planet. And it was something I needed, you know, I needed to to take that next step in my practice. Um, And we we develop regional fibre systems um, that build soil health and protect the health of our biosphere and, and communities. Well, let's think of them as earthlings, communities that don't just include people, but include plants, animals, the elements the rivers everything so yeah it's um it's an inspiring organization to be a part of and it was right at the very beginning of covid in march 2020 that i i became the affiliate initially for northwest england and it's now kind of grown into northern england and that was really the start of this process of uh, of growing jeans and uh, my collaboration on the homegrown homespun project.
0: The, the fiber shed idea is that you're supposed to be able to make your own stuff from within 150 miles or so. That's what it?
1: Rebecca Burgess did as her initial um, project. She wanted to grow an entire outfit or source an entire outfit from within a 150 mile radius of where she lived in California and she managed that. So it's, you know, we don't have any strict boundary, you know, we, and, and in Britain in particular, we recognize, you know, the British, British and Irish Isles are, are comparatively tiny to America. So, you know, we, are, we want to break out of our silos in terms of how we think about regeneration, but also coming back into that localism just brings forth so much diversity in terms of human expression, plant life, everything. So yeah, it is based on using what you've got in your local region the way 99.9% of our ancestors did. It, it seems so unusual in this era when we've, we're so far into this kind of capitalist colonialist system that has trained us in certain ways of thinking, but you know 30,000 years worth of humanity which i equated to around about 1200 generations and only the last six haven't just grown their own clothing from their own local region you know it's only since this kind of massive industrialization that these you know eons long human habits have very very quickly transformed so we mustn't be locked into that kind of way of thinking. I, I I kind of propose a different way of thinking about clothing, which can be quite challenging to the status quo. And, that, you know, I'm speaking outside of my remit, fibre shed. They, you know, they're aligned, but I would say I kind of can sometimes go a bit, bit further in my opinions. Um, so, yeah, it's... You, know, you can't solve a problem using the same level of consciousness that created it, as Einstein said. So, you know, I'm often looking to uh, traditional wisdom or indigenous ways of thinking based on, you know, a statistic I found out um, during this last few years from National Geographic that 80% of global biodiversity is currently being protected by indigenous peoples and they make up only five percent of the global population so five percent of the people are stewarding eighty percent of all of the species on earth because of their knowledge and wisdom that's not something they've done by deferring to western science or religion or economic systems so you know you know i i can't speak for those people but um i think through the work i've done with yoga you you practice some of the similar techniques that put you into a similar perspective that that enable you to decondition some of the programming and then enable you to kind of find a deeper wisdom that is coherent with many many cultures and our ancestors so that's that's kind of where i'm coming from (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. So you're not the first of my guests to have come from the fashion world. Oh, am I from the fashion world? Oh, you mean like way back,
1: way back, yeah.
0: Well, well, I mean, sort of, well, yes, way back. For the sake of my. uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, but it is interesting that you do have a certain amount of people that have been in the sort of fashion industry who then just totally turn their life on the head and go and do something. Which they have a lot more faith in. I
1: find the word "fashion" triggering, as you might have just noticed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: well, well, that has become a very, very toxic and bad word. Uh, and I think maybe our language needs to expand a bit more because you have the people saying fashion is good from a creative it's sense, expression. and then you have yeah. fast, fast fashion, which is terrible, but it's sort of still using the same word and. Mm.
1: Yeah, regenerative clothing is is what I'm, what I'm into. Um, yeah, clothing as a, a beautiful expression and a beautiful co-creation with your more than human relatives, your ecosystem, um, and a necessity unless you're going to be a naturist for the rest of your life,
0: which might not be super practical. In the north of England or No, I Norway? don't think it would go down Can't well ask.
1: at all in, in Holy Lake, where I am today.
0: <laughs> no. So, from fashion to yoga, The Wild Diary, how, how did that come about?
1: I mean, I, I did an MA. I spent sort of three years practising natural textile dyeing. And I see it as creative yoga. Um, I, I just... And activism—that—that's my—that's my kind of entry point into this. It's you know I, I did start off like, the way I think most people do, you know, producing some products and selling them, and then I realised I can't trace the provenance of that blank silk scarf I've just bought, or those dyes that have been imported. And I think it's just a process of refinement, isn't it? I think Maya Andrews said, you know, when you know better, you do better, and um, I'm continually trying to refine. And improve what I do and so I set up you know I I sort of thought well if I can if I'm not going to sell products I don't really want to hustle selling things to people on a planet that's kind of choking with stuff already but if I can teach people to extend the life of their clothing and their textiles using natural dyes that's a really useful skill to have because I mean, even in terms of the most perhaps mundane item, like your tea towel, how many onion skins do you chuck away in a week? Keep them in a paper bag behind the bread bin, fling them in the pan with that rotten old <laughs> tea towel and give it a new lease of life, you know? So it's just thinking in this way of, you know, it's making life more beautiful as well, but it's using what you've got to and um, keeping it longer. So that was my rationale. I created... Um, what what at the time in this country was the first online training in natural fabric dyeing it's a three module um used to run it over a kind of 12 week period people can now just take it online on demand um and really it's to to instill these core skills in natural fabric dyeing for people you know they can just practice it at home and you know, the second module gets more holistic and you'll learn the, the names of plants, go out foraging, build that connection. There's meditation involved in it. Um, and you'll eco print. So you'll print plants onto cloth and wear them. And, you know, for me, that's meaningful and that's that has purpose and that's useful Um my MA was all about narrative hand embroidery. My, my inquiry in my MA was whether meditation enhanced creativity. I did a lot of meditation. I would wake in the early hours in the morning, as I still do, with all my ideas and all these kind of poems in my head, which I just stitched into cloth. Now, at that time, I was natural dyeing my scarves. I couldn't get hold of naturally dyed embroidery threads, I mean, I, I eventually started dyeing my own, but at that time, you know, I was, there was that, that tension and that compromise, which was quite interesting. So that again has led me to where I am now of, why can't I get natural fiber and dye embroidery thread? Why does it have to be coated in petrochemicals? And, you know, this is, a lot of the work that I do is just simply trying to raise awareness of the difference between renewable and non-renewable materials. Uh, people aren't aware that the colors in their clothing even when you've got a beautiful organic t-shirt the colors are a form of microplastic that come from the fossil fuel industry it makes those beautiful fibers toxic to the environment forevermore and it's everywhere <laughs> so this you know it's, it's not a <laughs> it's not a fun fun news to bring to people but the way i've approached it is that well if i can get people in a classroom or we'll take them out of foraging teach them about beauty of natural colour it's really heartwarming and it's hopeful and it's uplifting it's inspiring we have all this all here it's the way everyone always used to do it it's just a very tiny percentage of our human history where we've we've been led somewhat astray into a bit of a zombie apocalypse I'm afraid (laughs) and you know I will use that kind of language because I I hope Um, yeah I mean if people find that triggering or depressing then yeah that's that is the situation Um, I'm hoping that in the work I'm doing at least I'm presenting the beautiful potential of a future where we regenerate I mean can you just imagine I mean actually this I'm lucky that this t-shirt is naturally dyed but imagine everyone being able to wear something that they know has helped restore the planet for future generations like that's a clothing to feel really or a piece of clothing to feel really good about so that's kind of that was the uh, rationale behind the wild diary and uh, gradually you know that wasn't enough because my daughter came to me and, and she said yeah I don't think it's I don't think I'm going to be able to have children because I can't bring another generation into a planet that's collapsing it doesn't feel responsible And that was a really terrible moment for me. And I thought, no, I've I've got to do more now. And it's all fine teaching in your little comfortable silo. Um, I wanted to try and get out and teach in areas where these kind of topics might not be available. And so, yeah, I sought out um, volunteering for Fibre Shed and collaborating (laughs) on the project, which, um, you know, is is resulted in me having this pair of jeans beside me today
0: but before we get there <laughs> you also had a collaboration with another of my guests patrick grant
1: oh no the, it, that is the collaboration
0: oh yeah that's yeah
1: okay. so you know i've known patrick quite a while and we have similar values i would say we we approach them from very different angles and that is cause of some uh, dynamic <laughs> what's the polite way of putting it uh kind of dynamic and exciting conversations perhaps we could put it that way um
0: okay
1: yeah we we challenge each other in terms of our perspective on on these sort of issues but um it's a good um it's a good way to to in- improve what we're both doing i hope it's certainly been that way for me so when I founded um, the Northwest England Fibre Shed, you know, I straight away went to Patrick and went, co-found this with me, please. And uh, was, yeah, given quite a withering look. But we did end up collaborating. And the, the premise of it was that I just wanted to, you know, he said to me, what do you want to do with this Fibre Shed? And I was like, well, I want to try and incentivize the reintroduction of textile crops back into the British agricultural system and create some mid-scale manufacturing infrastructure to make that a viable option for farmers. You know, just that tiny little goal. Um, Massive, massive, you know, challenge because obviously we all wear jeans, they're cotton, cotton isn't grown in this country, but we have our own native cellulose fibre, which is linen. And obviously, his jeans are dyed in petrochemical, synthesized indigo. We have our own natural indigo that grows in this country called woad with an incredible heritage. So, you know, I said to him, what about we just make a little denim mending kit? You know, I've been doing lots of mending and embroidering. I couldn't find my embroidery threads manufactured in this country. Let's do that. And he was like, no, let's grow jeans. Because I'd sent him, you know, the Fibershed book, (laughs) <laughs> and uh Rebecca Burgess had done the Grow Your Jeans project in 2015 over in California. So she was using cotton, that's her native cellulose fibre over there, or their bast fibre, if you want to call it that. And for that to translate over here, it was just perfect to to start growing linen and woad. And so yeah, quite a, a lofty ambition. And the homegrown homespun project was born. We um Invited uh, the British Textile Biennial, who Patrick is a patron of, to collaborate with us, and they're run by an organisation called Super Slow Way, which is um, an arts commissioning organisation running along the Leeds Liverpool Canal, which is just, just the heartland of textiles in uh, in in Britain, northwest region. Um, so it was pertinent to base it there as well. You know, Patrick has his clothing factory there, but that area in particular has seen a lot of onshoring and offshoring as a result of um fashion companies chasing cheap labor so a lot of the south asian community uh moved here for jobs in fashion then it was offshored and they were left without jobs so um we were you know we had the intention of um, and we still do, bringing a line of indigo linen jeans to market via Patrick's Social Enterprise Community Clothing. We started our first growing season in 2021 on this piece of, you know, really derelict urban land, you know, beautiful green area, but it'd been used for fly tipping, rough sleeping, all kinds, very close to the centre of Blackburn and on the canal. And we grew... Uh, a, a field of flax and woad and we we <laughs> one in hindsight aspect of this that I would probably change is to not have a deadline but we did have deadlines of this event the British Textile Biennial the first one was October 2021 we aimed to produce a prototype pair of jeans at that point
0: how far was that ahead then
1: how far what sorry how
0: far was it? Uh, I mean, you planted the flax and how what was your yeah, first deadline for long, a pair of prototype jeans? Yeah, Not long.
1: We planted at the end of April and <laughs> the, the, the biennial was, you know, beginning of October. Um but we managed to produce a uh, a meter of cloth. And you know, that's the wow. first indigo linen denim piece of cloth that Britain had produced for a very long time. And it's very it was very, very beautiful. Um and yeah, we didn't meet the the kind of goal of creating a, a full pair of jeans at that point. I find it quite interesting that I've done it now, two years later. I think we were just a bit uh, two years out. <laughs> so um, <laughs> our next goal was to bring this full line of jeans to market in time for this October's biennial. And you know, things have changed, and, and I don't. Think that's going to happen uh, via community clothing in time for October but I think by the next biennial in uh, 20 where are we 2025 or before um, Patrick will have done that and you know he will be the first clothing manufacturer to bring completely um, homegrown jeans to market and you know for both the, this individual prototype pair And hopefully for community clothing in future, that's, you know, it's a moment in history of where we, you know, come to our senses, come back down to earth and start using the, the skills and the resources we have in our local regions.
0: The fact that you couldn't meet the deadlines, was that due to it actually being a lot more work than you first thought?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were deliberately ambitious. We knew we were setting ourselves an impossible challenge right at the beginning. And we, we kind of did that to provoke questions about, well, why, why is it so difficult? There's no linen or natural dye processing facilities in the country. So How are you going to bring jeans to market? So we were hoping that through that, through the process and through raising awareness and through incentivizing uh, businesses to, to take an interest generate this movement towards it which we have done and it's really exciting to see I mean actually I'm um, upscaling British indigo production with a colleague of mine called Mark Palmer we've set up a, a business called Homegrown Colour and we were growing with a, a big organic farm in North Yorkshire we're just still going through our trial phase this year but you know that's coming online and you know, there's other kind of. There's a factory that worked with us in Blackburn. He he will be dyeing um, the community clothing jeans eventually. We produced all the indigo ready for that, so that's just um, waiting. So, for a synthetic dye factory to be showing an interest is a great um, moment of progress as well. And there are other indicators. You know, other research going on with people like uh, Simon and Anne Cooper who've really. Preserve the linen history in this country up there with a business called flaxland you know he's been doing research because he's a, a farmer um, who's always farmed linseed well linseed is grown widely and linseed is you know that flax linseed is the same it's just different names of the same plant isn't it so there's one variety grown specifically for seed one grown for fiber which is obviously taller and the seed isn't as uh, you know isn't for, for eating so Simon's identified there's about a 50% fibre yield in linseed which just gets wasted and there's a considerable amount of that going on in the country so you know there's been some interesting conversations between linseed growers and a cotton mill in particular who they're now talking and they're now talking about well can we cottonize that linseed fibre and create some viable products that way so things are moving and incremental benefits um, have resulted from this, from this project. And um, yeah, I think everyone's looking forward to the day they can wear some homegrown jeans.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking back to when I, um, I had Chris Hewitt oh, yeah. of uh, Hewitt's Denim on and the immense journey he was on from having the idea of making some British jeans yeah. and weaving British denim through to actually <laughs> having a pair. Yeah, spoke uh, to him
1: years ago about about this. And yeah, with with since Sajid, who actually has sewn the jeans a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, there's a lot.
0: Of- another guest on the Sorry. I Sorry. I feel this project of yours has brought together so many former Gomology guests.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Mosin, Chris, uh, yes. Patrick, and uh, I think you've had help from Morn as well.
1: Morn, oh well, Malan Linen, yeah, more so. I, I, um, I don't, I haven't been in touch with Mario directly, but uh, Helen from Helen and Charlie from Malan Linen. You know these these jeans right here are half Malan Linen, half my Hoylake allotment. <laughs> so, yeah, Charlie has been a part of this um, prototype. Um, Pair of jeans, which you know, they're the first um, pair of jeans to have been grown in the UK in over 120 years.
0: So, should we focus a little on just how many parts of the process there is here? Because when you say, Oh, I just grew some linen, (laughs) just grew some woad, most (coughs) in assembled them, and that is sort of skipping Mm -hmm. about 58 different. Intricate steps along the way, I think. Yeah, it
1: is. And you know, luckily, there came a certain point in the homegrown homespun project where we realised, you know, we're we're not going to meet that the name that we gave the project. It's not going to be homespun. So there's a compromise there. There were other issues uh, as we went along, and I said, "Well, I'll make a pair, and I'll fulfil that phase one target." And I was lucky enough to get some arts council funding. So my intent was really because, you know, what I've learned over these last few years or what's been, you know, really emphasised for me is the empowering nature of having skill. And in particular, textile skill in the way that it puts you in physical contact with natural materials. And that builds this sense of reverence for the natural environment, and a reverence for human labour, when you actually have to do this stuff yourself, you really start to comprehend the exploitation that's going on if you buy a five pound plastic dress. So my goal with this sort of um, woman grows jeans tandem sort of, it's not a spin off, I'm I'm fulfilling the, the aims of homegrown, homespun, but you know, it was my personal challenge was to go from seed to garment through every single stage of the process and fill in any skill gaps in myself so you know I, I I can pattern cut and sew I can I've done a bit of growing I've had an allotment a few years or certainly through this project I've gained a lot more experience of growing flax I've been growing indigo a long time I know how to extract indigo and dye with indigo so there's from the beginning. In the whole process, the gaps for me were hand spinning and weaving, and I'll, 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 I'll come to that. But from the very first stage, obviously, is planting the seed, weeding, <laughs> tending, caring. For flax, there's about a 100 days before you're ready to pull that fiber. Then you pull it up by the root and you lie it on the ground to ret or rot. So we get into all the terminology that <clears throat> would have been every day. most of our ancestors and it's just completely unusual to us now so the retting breaking scutching hackling so the breaking you have retted your fibers you lay them out for you know two to six weeks to um let the microbes in the soil and the moisture and the temperature of the the sun the morning dew work on the the lignin and the pectin in the plant stem to separate the fiber from the woody parts so that happens you have to test it you have to go along you know it's an, an art form is retting there's so much skill in farming and again that was something we really underestimated um you have to go along every you know maybe twice a week take some fiber out dry it and then do this with it between your hands and you listen you have to identify is that a lovely crisp crunch where the shive, the woody part is breaking off easily, or does it sound a bit gummy and sticky and it's still glued together? When it's mm-hmm. in its perfect stage of retting, get it up, because if it goes, it is under, you're not gonna be able to process it. If it's over, you're done, you've got no fiber. So it's oh. that, you, the, the level of kind of um, understanding between grower and plant is really important. So you dry it after that point, then you would break it, which we have this wooden contraption with a big lever that you would put these woody stems between and break, um, bash it down, break off all the woody parts. You get something called a scutching knife, which is a piece of wood and you'll bash it again and you'll try and get off as much of that kind of woody um, part as you possibly can. Then you hackle, so there's nails in a piece of wood of varying grades starting quite big and you'll pull it through and you get different grades of flax fibre at that point actually and it can all be used all the waste products can be used as well and you'll end up you'll have your flax toe which is the kind of bit that's all been combed out and it looks a bit of a mess but you can still use and then you have this beautiful long line fibre that looks like flax and hair looks like <laughs> pretty much like my hair that's then ready to spin so hand spinning is the next stage i um had a go at hand spinning when we did some workshops in the field during homegrown homespun just sharing these skills with the local community and i actually spent about nine months practicing my spinning before i started actually or before i dared to touch the fiber i'd grown myself i was terrified Um, it takes 10 years you know so I I did the best I possibly could I was advised not to spin the warp for my jeans so that's why I had man linen um, fiber and another lady called Carol Bowman spun the warp I spun all the weft I sat for nine weeks three hours a week spinning hand spinning to produce five kilometers of weft Carol did the same. So was about 10 kilometres in these jeans. Um, The stage after that was weaving. So, you know, really, I was never going to be a weaver just like that. So that was a a gap in my skills. Um, I I went on a few kind of weave uh, workshops to just, I was going to be a supported weaver. I was going to have weave technicians and be a supported weaver. In the event, you know, every single curveball was thrown and I sort of allocated a time period where I went and moved up to the Yorkshire Dales for 10 days so I could be near my two teachers and we were going to weave this cloth together. And the loom just ended up not being (laughs) suitable. And the warp ended up actually getting a little bit damaged due to that process. And after about six days, I sort of, Um, I realised I'd done a little workshop with um, a weave teacher from Liverpool. And during that, only a couple of weeks before, she'd said to me, oh, I spin hundreds of metres of, I weave hundreds of metres of linen a year, you know. And I'm like, what? No one does that. Weavers hate linen. They all prefer wool. But she um, is Kirsty Ledbetter from the Liverpool Weaving Company. She has to keep everything she does very quiet because she works for, if you could think of all the top fashion couture houses, she works for them, but she's always bound by non-disclosure agreements. So when I look at her online, I just think, oh yeah, she teaches weaving workshops to kids. I had never thought to kind of because I always already was working with weavers who are brilliant as well. But when the loom malfunctioned, we were all at the end of our tether in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, I said, we're going to have to move this to Kirsty's loom. She, I, I only just found out she had a fantastic loom. And I had to just hand the job over to her, which was kind of hard for me, handing my baby over. But also very good for my mental health at that point. <laughs> and just let me get out of the way. Um I'm quite an intuitive person and uh, throughout this whole process, I I don't know if you've seen that film, um, The King in the Car Park, about this lady who had a psychic premonition about King Richard III being buried in a car park, I think in Leicestershire. It's a true story. You must look that up. It's a really good film. I have that sort of aspect to this story, kind of sense of fate, and I do believe in signs from the universe so i show up at kirstie's studio and on the outside is a little plaque saying linica linica building supplies or something to that effect that's where her studio is located linica means field of linen so in the middle of saint helens in merseyside I, I know i'm like oh field of okay field of linen and then Kirsty's middle name is jean so Kirsty jean queen whoa Britain's first pair of homegrown jeans which I I just enjoy those sorts of facts it's kind of it was a big comfort to me in the moment um after the weaving and the cloth cloth was produced I then had to wash and beetle it so when cloth comes off a loom it's in loom state it's very kind of open it feels very rough like sackcloth in the case of linen very stiff um it was washed, and then I put it on my wooden kitchen table and got a. First of all, I got um, a wooden blending board I'd use for my spinning, like a big bread board with a handle. and I bashed it. You bash the cloth, and then you let it relax, and then you bash it again, and then you get a rolling pin on it, and roll it. And this is something that was is always done with with linen production. In fact, in Northern Ireland, they have. Um, an original beetling machine i can't think i i should remember the name of the company i think it's william something and sons but they have these imagine wooden blocks a bit like piano keys hitting the strings and they kind of they do this all along the cloth on a massive massive scale so i was doing that with my rolling pin having a great time beating hell out of it and then Once that cloth is ironed and dried, it's got a new personality. It's got luster and drape and it it flows and the the weave has closed up somewhat. But during the weave process, because of the issues we'd had and because the warp was damaged, we had to change the, the weave twill. So, Kirsty, we were going to have a 3-1 twill. I'm getting very technical on you now. <laughs> so,
0: well, I mean, as long as you explain yeah, what you're so, talking about. so,
1: God, I mean, as much as I can as a very newbie weaver. So, um, a 3-1 twill just means there's, you know, the, the, the weft, in this case, is going to be dominant. It's going to show on the surface, you know, 3 to 1. Um, she felt that was going to be too risky with a damaged warp and already quite fragile because it's been hand-spun warp. Um, so she changed it to a two one twill, which means less blue and she couldn't really beat it. So when you're weaving, you have to pull, God, I wish I could remember the, the name of the, the thing that <laughs> you pull towards you. I'm having a mental block, but you have to put it, you know, when you weave, you see people pull and it tightens the row you've just pulled together. She couldn't do, I
0: think, I think you mean it's the
1: thingy, It's thingy. yeah, um, yeah. Oh, my teacher would be so cross for me forgetting that term. But anyway, she couldn't beat it very hard. Maybe it's just called the beater. So we have a different weave of cloth from what we'd sampled, a much looser weave, actually. Um, So that then impacted the sewing of the jeans as well. I'd gone for a week, you know, right at the very beginning, I have to decide... Well, how much cloth am I going to need? How much fibre am I going to need to spin? And um, what size of loom? All these things. So I had a pair of jeans that fit me really well. I like them because they suck my tummy in. And (laughs) lift your bum. All the things you want from a pair of jeans. Um, But when it came to the sewing, we'd planned on a fitted, tight jean. We now have a loose weave of cloth. I take them off to uh, Sin Sajid, who's a fantastic denim historian and, and lecturer at loads and loads of universities on uh, denim history. And again, it was one of those instances where I just I wanted to step out of the way and let him do his thing. And, you know, it's it's his moment to be a part of this story as well. I feel like the jeans, you know, they've got a bit of spirit about them and a will of their own. They, they know who they wanted involved. And... Part of uh, Mawson's uh, design was a button fly. So again, a button fly with this particular weave of cloth, which isn't quite as tight and strong as it may have been, uh, or or as we'd hoped, means that they are not quite as a robust pair of everyday jeans as um, I'd hoped. I'd hoped they'd be my forever jeans. They've got other ideas. They want to travel and tell their story. And they're more of a prototype um they're extremely beautiful let me show you them um but yeah they they are a prototype um that's what they look like i don't know if this is the only point we show them when the, <laughs> this is on audio but you know you can have a look
0: yeah um, yeah there's lots of character in there lots
1: there. of character i mean you know we refined what was done with the prototype piece of cloth uh but you still get these lovely little indications of well, stripes, for one thing. We've got mallon linen, Hoylake linen. Actually, I put a little bit of Berta's flax in it as well. I don't know if you know the story of Berta's flax. So It's just, again, another tangent. Mm-hmm. But during this whole linen revival that I've become a part of, there's been a lady, a lady called Christiane, I think, in Austria, who was gifted uh, a dowry of flax. And this is a tradition across Europe that, you know, up until about, Maybe 100 years or less ago, women, when they got married, were given a, a chest of flax fibre. So lots of these old ladies are passing away now and their families are finding them in the attic and they're donating them to Christiane. she's formed this worldwide movement of people using Berta's flax. So I got sent some Berta's flax. I learned to spin using a 100 year old flax. It's the most exquisite quality because the longer it's left. The softer it gets, so that's part of this story. And and despite the fact that these are, you know, met, I I just I don't like Puritanism to be honest. So I kind of threw a bit of Bertha's flax in, in the mix, even though these are fiber shared, local, everything local, British. I did that deliberately to honour Berta's flax, because that should be part of this story. Because um, it taught me to spin. Um, so yeah, I've gone on a, another wild tangent there but um the genes are here and i'm basically now uh passing the baton to patrick um you know when at whatever point the genes come to market it will be him to translate what i've done into something that is accessible to to more people um that is really not my remit. My remit has been to, to throughout this process, go more deeply into what it means to be a regenerator. There are multi multiple layers to the topic of regeneration. And, you know, I recognised quite early on in Homegrown, Homespun, that there were limitations to working. We work with a, um, a team of volunteers around the Blackburn area, but people that tra- travelled from all over the country as well. And regeneration, I found out, is a hugely intersecting topic. You can't talk about it with talk- without talking about racism, gender issues, uh, you know, capitalist colonialism. All of these thorny, thorny issues intersect the regeneration of the planet, especially when you consider the people doing it right are the Indigenous people who've been suppressed and, and just cancelled. <laughs> you know, so... Um, and exploited i should say so my inquiry was to go quite deep into regenerative practice as a way to really understand what it how can i be um how can i be indigenous how can i follow those kind of practices as a white woman within a white supremacist system in a colonialist country that's the reality of the matter isn't it there are these these very difficult issues intersect what we're doing. So um, I had enough of my plate and uh, now I'm passing the baton to Patrick to <laughs> to translate um, this prototype into uh, beautiful homegrown jeans that people will be able to buy via community clothing, His social enterprise. I'm
0: very, very curious how and when that might happen because it strikes me that every step of the way here you were attempting to do tasks that traditionally were very very skilled and people would be super experienced and today will also require if there's to be any sort of scale in this they will require machines Mm -hmm. so i mean you're sitting there now with what is probably the uk's most costly pair of jeans but what are the problems in actually scaling it up into a product that can be sold
1: mm.
0: for a reasonable price? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's about getting that, um, the manufacturing, the textile manufacturing um, businesses interested in, in linen, which I believe they are going to become more, more interested. You know, you've got to place it in the context of, you know, the UN telling everybody we are facing, societal collapse on a global scale by 2030 if we don't start divesting well if we don't stop this kind of temperature increase which requires us to divest from fossil fuels so then you look at the entire dye industry totally using fossil fuels so it's that it's those kind of provocations that um we're we're hoping to kind of raise but you know if someone like patrick with his influence and um, his ability to communicate this issue to his peers, presents these kind of facts. Then it is just simple future proofing. Businesses have to start transitioning. So, a product like this can really um, blaze a trail. Hopefully, and you know, maybe it might be a limited edition. Maybe, maybe this is going to take longer than we expect, but it is inevitable, and. Um, I think he's quite um, heroic for getting involved, to be honest, at this point, very, very early days in the movement. And, um, yeah, I just really look forward to to when it uh, comes to fruition.
0: I'm sort of thinking that, yes, I mean, they will certainly appeal to the people who do get it, but there's so many people today who have said, oh, yeah, global warming, yada, yada, whatever, Uh, and just sort of changing a sufficient amount of people to do things differently is a massive yeah, challenge. Yeah, I think we
1: need legislation, don't we, really? I mean, it's it's, it's beyond, <laughs> beyond something I can just come up with a solution for right now, but um, certainly we're having the types of conversations along with many other people and it feels to me like I might be in an echo chamber, but it feels to me like we're reaching a tipping point of people saying the same thing. And isn't it something... Oh, I wish I could remember. I think it's something like 70% of all greenhouse gas emissions are produced by just 100 companies. So you know, you're talking about a very small number of people who can make these changes. Um, and, yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> I hope just yeah. presented... And not that this project can do that, but, you know, certainly... Patrick works with King Charles on uh, up at Dumfries House on the Future Textiles project. I went up there and visited them and um, you know we, we talked about they have a beautiful organic farming system. Obviously, who was then Prince Charles has been a massive advocate of organic farming. They also um, have a beautiful um, kind of sustainable fashion programme called Future Textiles and they hadn't, Known how to link the two, and I went up there telling them about fibershed and it really clicked. Something of though, well, you grow textiles. You can grow textiles now, and and they they were starting a dye garden, and um, so it's it's things like that. Not that um, I can have much influence there, but Patrick can, you know. So they're, they're, it's it's people having conversations with people, and hopefully they're more influential and. Uh, the more people can make an impact the quicker the changes will happen because they're urgent and you know it does, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance around at the moment there's a lot, a lot of concealing of the truth i think just ban certain forms of brainwashing from society would be a massive help start telling people the truth would be a massive help um but yeah it's uh it's a uh, it's the problem of our era isn't it
0: that's the thing isn't it that we everyone knows what the problem is yeah but the people who can actually do something about it spend more time deflecting it and trying to spin it into something else yeah than actually dealing with it yeah and I
1: recognise you know capitalism is kind of like a knife in an artery isn't it if you just pull it out too quickly you're going to harm the people who are most affected already so we we You know, I've really appreciated Patrick's perspective during this whole process because he does come from that um, rational, economic, commercial mindset. He has employees, he has a responsibility to. Um, That perspective is really important as well because um, you've got to protect the people who are already suffering under this system and try and evolve it in an incremental way without causing more harm than good so yeah it's um it's it's tricky but i think ultimately as well i mean i don't like the way that the consumer has been made responsible for these huge corporations but having said that if more people realize the truth of the exploitation and damage caused by their purchases they would think twice i mean I just, I just think maybe before someone buys that five pound plastic dress, try and put yourself in the perspective of an Amazonian tribal person. How relevant is that purchase now? (laughs) Try and put yourself in the perspective of an ancestor 200, 300 years ago, pre-industrially, how important is that dress now? So our drivers you know, we've been kind of con- conned into thinking that um, we can boost our self-esteem by buying the skills of enslaved people and it's all been kind of hidden packaged packages this glowy lovely product when actually that's the reality of what's going on simultaneously our country has been de-skilled due to offshoring and my real argument about this i mean my kind of it's not just the only one but the real big conclusion is that skill gives you something money can't buy, skill changes you, it gives self-esteem, it builds discipline, resilience, determination, all of these qualities you don't get by buying something and throwing it away yet you're told you will. So there's a fool's gold situation going on and I really feel like I mean, for me, the plants have a wisdom to them. And when you work in the way those plants require with your hands, you develop that wisdom almost by osmosis. It's probably not the right, not the right term for a plant, but you get the gist of being like a metaphor. Um, I have been initiated by these plants, and I think anyone producing clothing or, or designing fashion from here on in must undergo an initiation you can only design and make responsibly once you have experienced physically how long and how hard it is to grow those materials and turn them into something now, whether that, well, for me, that is you have to reinstate pre-industrial textile skills and all kinds of making skills to our educational curriculum immediately, not only because we want to reshore our industry and we want to have those that skilled workforce in, in 10 years, but also because you are giving an education that goes beyond rote it goes beyond intellect it is embodied it is these qualities that we don't necessarily get from our education system it's moral a moral compass it's a reverence it's everything so i also think these corporations need to come to you know my field and dig their hands in the dirt and then when they've experienced that toil then you go away and you you're connected and you're you can design and make responsibly so for me it is about initiation I think we're missing a rite of passage in our education in our human development I think we're immature as a human species right now and we we're missing those kind of indigenous elements of culture that would have been a natural part of growing up so yeah I'm 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 bringing the educational aspect and the redevelopment of skills for holistic reasons, a real win-win. And um, I'm passing the baton to Patrick in terms of uh, translating this into saleable products.
0: I remember when I spoke to Patrick, he was also talking about how difficult it was to find qualified workers for his yeah, factory. Exactly. And, of course, the, the way you're thinking now, you will need kind of to make making clothes and fibres cool again.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, Cookson and Clegg is a really vibrant place to work from what I see of it, you know, from, from what I can get the gist of it on social media. It's a, it's a nice place. Social media. It's warm and, and you know, clean
0: and light.
1: Yeah, and um, certainly Patrick's ethics um, would mean for me that, you know, if, you, if you're going to work as a seamstress or a pattern cutter or whatever it might be, you can go along to a fast fashion factory and do that job or you can go to somewhere like Cooks and Clegg or one of the other factories Patrick works with and get a sense that you're contributing to something worthwhile while earning your your wages. Um, I think our... Uh, um, educational system has been funneled into careers that perpetuate our current economic system um, you see creative topics being just sidelined you know how can one of the skills of survivalism one of the basic human needs like clothing yourself become perceived as this very demeaned hobby for middle-aged women you know oh god let's, let's really disempower people and turn people off skills let's let's make let's say they're all just they're just for middle-aged women that's how you do it that's how you kind of turn people off the topic you know apparently um so not so you know the the absolute buzz i'm, I'm now knitting a jumper because obviously i've got to have something to go in my jeans i can't just you know if i want to be top to toe fiber shed i'm knitting a jumper new skill again when i couldn't weave the the jeans or sew them I, you know I was like what do I do oh my god what do I do <laughs> so I started knitting a jumper I didn't just knit the jumper of course I got a bag of white fluff from a, a lady in Lancashire just said have this bag Absolutely. of fluff and I naturally dyed it and I hand spun it and, and then you know knitted it so I'm going through that process now but the absolute buzz of it you know it's you know it it's so underestimated and it's comparative to what's happened with food as well. You know, I had I got an allotment um, early on in COVID. All these things happened at once in 2020. And it's funny because yesterday, Facebook memories and, you know, God, for all its flaws, Facebook popped this memory up that it was two years ago yesterday that I harvested the flax and indigo that are in these jeans right here. And on that same day, I have a picture of me, you know, in the with all the flax and all the, the beautiful indigo, but then this bounty of food that we'd grown that year as well. Just this abundant harvest. And it just sparked this memory of like the first time I walked into our sunny greenhouse and the heat and the scent of tomatoes, and just picking a ripe tomato off the vine and eating it. I mean, that is living (laughs) that is just the most glorious gift and it's the same with making your own clothing and and of course these these things have been demeaned as oh you don't want to do that you want to buy our products of course we have we've been brainwashed and we really need to tackle that now um and that kind of loops back into my yoga practice part of Part of what I did when I, as part of this homegrown homespun thing, was a few tangents shot off the side when I realized things that were going on. And um, part of this issue is that we buy from anxiety, we buy for kind of emotional reasons through stress. And that actually, well, twofold, we need to tackle our stress, but we need to tackle the brainwashing that we're very susceptible to when we're stressed. Yoga meditation practice are specifically designed to kind of tune you into a frequency that is outside of that noise. So, I started something called Earth Rests and I I started an online version of what I was doing in the field called Growing Slow Textiles. And it's been the most beautiful experience. Like over the last two years, I have two cohorts now who I've guided with, with a team of other people from seed to indigo linen cloth and it's just been fantastic but as part of it at the end of each session everyone lies down and I, I, I do a kind of guided relaxation based on real reverence for the elements and the natural environment and it goes down really really well we, we shift gears from the very kind of cognitive intellectual and then we really absorb what we've just Learned and feel it and you know it, it's a different level of learning once you switch off your kind of more brainwashed brain so yeah all those things going on and all those things that I'll be progressing with over the next uh next couple of years.
0: It sounds like you don't really believe in uh, in retail therapy.
1: <laughs> I um I don't <laughs> I don't remember the last time I bought anything new and actually if I do buy something new I tend to just wear it to death constantly um but I don't I I went for years without buying anything at all and and you know I think this is something Patrick said in one of his talks we've all got enough clothing probably Or you know many of us have got enough clothing and we've got a massive issue with waste colonialism happening um, hmm. People buying clothes. Actually, the statistic is that we only wear about a third of what we buy. 50% of it goes into landfill within a year. There's currently like 150 billion items of clothing being made globally, 70% of which are derived from fossil fuels. So, you know, all of this is coming from stress induced by this kind of media messaging that we're not good enough as we are and and, oh you must buy our product to feel good about yourself and actually I'm saying actually just just make it have a go doing it yourself
0: it is strange that as awareness has become so much greater around all this because I mean most people are aware now that clothes are not good for Mm -hmm. the planet but at the same time, fast fashion has geared up to such an extent. It used to be that H&M was the baddie, then it was Xi'an, and now it's a whole slew of other Chinese companies and people are just buying and buying and mm. buying. So their marketing must have become much smarter, much more directed, much stronger, because it does seem to be winning the war.
1: Yeah, I think um, the access, the levels of access social media has um, to people, is it's it's worrying isn't it it's it's um it's it's difficult um it's a very manipulative it's a very brilliant force as well this is the this is the challenge of our time everything that is uh really toxic has this really useful aspect to it you know (laughs) so we have to develop our own discernment um but i do feel you know i i've said it before, I think fast fashion is a self-esteem issue. You don't build self-esteem by buying it. You build it by um, improving your skills. You improve it by becoming self-sufficient and that is about gaining skill. Skills give you confidence. Like I said before, they give you something money can't buy. Um, So we need more people you know, singing from the same hymn sheet. And there are, there are loads of people. Um, It's brilliant to be a part of this movement. And I see things happening like, you know, Madeline Linen have got their scutching mill um, with a a Kickstarter going at the moment, a fundraiser to get that going. There are lots of other little micro projects happening. And, you know, it's only a, 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 a matter of time before we reach a critical mass with this.
0: I think the good side needs to spend more money on social media and advertising and uh, and really go into the battle. Yeah,
1: and you know, you said before, these jeans would be the most expensive jeans on the, on the planet. Whatever.
0: Not expensive, costly.
1: Yeah, well, I just sort of think, you know, <laughs> if you're a billionaire earning like Elon Musk does, what does he earn? Something like, a I don't know, 150 million an hour or something. You know, if your wealth is accompanied by greed and hoarding, then you're just a hungry ghost. There's no satisfaction in that. What about we think about wealth of character? Is Elon Musk wealthy enough in his character to buy my next pair of jeans that I create with this team? And there's no actual price except that he would have to treat us as his equal. So, you know, imagine that.
0: Throwing down imagine the Imagine
1: that prospect. You can have a pair of jeans. You just have to to pay us as your equal. These are five hundred hour jeans. What are you earning per hour, Elon? Mm. <laughs> and then you know, obviously, this is just a um, <laughs> a provocation. But if there is a billionaire out there who who really wants to be a part of this moment in history where we revive these uh, industries that regenerate the planet, what can be more important, that money would go towards establishing a beautiful centre of excellence for regenerative, growing agriculture, textiles. Um, You know, it could do great things, couldn't it?
0: (laughs) could but there's, and there's such an element of time as you were saying yeah. i mean there just isn't time
1: well you know what i just i'm gonna get a spiritual on you here and um i've put a lot of faith i have faith in nature um and i think part of the issue we we're facing as well is that you know i'm talking about indigenous peoples and how they actually know how to save the planet and we're ignoring them because our western scientific mindset has conflated Religion and spirituality with stupidity and ignorance, so that when I say I'm going to get a spiritual on you, it's like, oh God, <laughs> you know, not you particularly. You know some people will listen to that and go, oh, I'm, I'm switching off. <laughs> Actually, I have faith in nature. I, um it might sound grandiose and as flawed as I am, I am doing my best to be of service to Gaia and all the Earthlings that rely on this planet for survival. So. That's the that's where I want to be, and that's where I, what I where I, what I intend to continue in future being of as useful as I possibly can, and being of service to to life, and I, I would call that Gaia.
0: <laughs> I'm totally with you. I mean, nature manages a lot better without humans than with.
1: Well, we you know we are nature. You know, this is part of the issue as well, and that even the word "nature" is problematic, because it in, it implies that we are above it as a human species, and we're evidently not. Because if we were the most human speci- uh, the most intelligent species on the planet, we would not be committing collective suicide by killing our ecosystem. <laughs> okay,
0: okay. Uh, now, since you're an indigo specialist, I wanted to ask you about something of a hobby horse of mine. I see so much fabric that says it's dyed with natural indigo. Oh. But I also know that plant-based indigo isn't used to a very great extent because it's costly and rare. Mm-hmm. When when you see natural indigo, what do you think that means?
1: I would always challenge that if I didn't think it was natural indigo. It's kind of a a bugbear. Yeah, I started, right at the very beginning, I started a Facebook group called Natural Textile Dyeing. And uh, we've got all the world's real experts in that group. And, God, it's been going on for years. We've got about 15,000 members now. And we've seen it over and over again, you know, new, it's, it's great new people becoming interested, but we've also seen these kind of people appropriating and greenwashing and passing things off that they aren't. And we will challenge that. We will wade in. And and I, I feel like it's like being in a restaurant and I, if something's disgusting, it's really useful feedback to let them know. It's like constructive. So we will... Um, challenge that but I don't you know I mean the people that I see are probably because I'm just following people I know and then the people then they know I the natural indigo I see i I think is natural indigo when I see indigo I question that because indigo can be a color you know it can just be like the people just think it's blue yeah but I don't like it if I do find someone um passing off. even the natural dye aesthetic I had this with a quite a large company and they started producing um natural I think it was yarns or and and they they they've done a little flat lay like all the natural dyers do you know when they had the exact same colors of natural dyes and they were calling them natural and they're petrochemical so yeah that
0: yeah. <laughs> So they were sort of natural, natural colors, colors. inspired. And, by. You know,
1: you're just you're really um, co-opting a movement and trying to cash in on what you consider a trend, and reducing it and and deceiving people. And and I am not, I'm not here for that. I'm always going to say something about that. Um, and me and quite a few other people did, and they removed their post. And hopefully they've rethought. <laughs> That strategy, that marketing strategy, because it's a big company. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've got to instill principles at this point, because, you know, I recognize as well what, what I've been doing and, and in this collaboration with Patrick and Superstar Way is raising awareness. And when, you, when you're doing that, you're talking about showbiz. You know, you're talking about PR marketing. It's like raising awareness. That is kind of one of the purposes of it. And the risk then is that the, the core values and the principles become diluted, and people just pick up the, the you know the most superficial aspect, and then they try and do it themselves. And so that's that's a concern for me. But you know, like you say, we don't have much time. We've got to try and get this information out there as quickly as possible, and then hopefully people will see that there's a um, a responsible way to develop this regenerative practice. And there's a way that's going to just perpetuate the same level of harm.
0: Okay, Justine, this has been a great conversation. Now, I know there's one matter that the listeners will be wondering about at this point. Now, you did say you wanted to make some quite skinny jeans that would give you butt lift (laughs) and tummy tuck. One once you've now finished your jeans they're lying next to you all made up and well how do they actually fit
1: they fit beautifully they were very very well pattern cut by morsin um, the the slight issue of them is that we did not know what the weave of the cloth was going to be and so with those button flies and the, and the loose weave of the cloth and the the fit of the jeans that combination should have been for a baggy jean ideally um which we didn't we would have needed to know that nine months ago so we could have adjusted a quantity of fire and leave um they fit they fit beautifully and you know i'll eventually get some pictures I've, I've done some beautiful flat lay pictures with a photographer but i'll get some pictures of myself in them um, but they won't be jeans that I will be wearing every single day of the week. You know, they've got a will of their own. They know, I think they've got a bit of a master plan. I think they want to go on tour. They have already been invited to be uh, exhibited at a couple of shows next year. I'll be showing them when I'm interviewed at the British Textile Biennial this October on Saturday the 28th. I've got the Um, brilliant journalist Lucy Siegel interviewing me at the Textile Biennial on that day in the afternoon so they will be there I probably won't be slouching around in them and also if you sit in people just want to see them so they'll be on a stand people can come up and touch them then (laughs) otherwise it gets a little bit awkward (laughs) Um, they fit beautifully they feel just incredible you know before we, we were doing the interview i just kind of sat here and gave them a little hug and if you, They've got their own beautiful scent as well. And you just smell the plants and the earthiness and the indigo and all of it. And they're really, they're kind of, um, it's like a living being. It feels like a living being to me. They have a spirit. Let's put it this way. They have a spirit. They have a spirit to them. There's a lot of love gone into these so many people have supported me during this journey apart from the fact that you know in particular two people ended up stepping in at the last minute to to do probably more than I'd expected there have been just tons and tons of people that I'm so thankful for who've gone above and beyond and you know been on the phone and been online answering questions throughout the last three years for homegrown homespun as well and they're all woven within this cloth so it literally it kind of pulsates like when I saw that picture of me pulling the flax yesterday the two years ago memory my jeans are right next to me and I just was like oh, had this massive revelation that you know I've got quite bogged down in this process at, at times because it's been really really difficult and it's been hard to kind of keep going many times on my own so I just had this moment I'm like oh my god all of that all of that pales into insignificance at this point I planted seeds and those plants are in these jeans, and it was incredible to me it was just like I just felt this kind of pulsating love from these jeans. they're just a really beautiful talisman for me they're a talisman and they are a big provocation and and you know it is throwing down the gauntlet I am um you know I I totally recognize we've been you know kind of deliberately over ambitious in the homegrown homespun project I've completed this challenge two weeks later uh, two years later than expected it might take another few years for Patrick to complete his challenge Um, but it's it's just such a meaningful process um that's been so rewarding and so many people have said how it's just kind of through covid it started in covid it just kind of kept everyone going this hope that yeah we're doing something we're going to get in the field we're just going to dig (laughs) we're going to just start building soil and building a better future
0: would you have done it again
1: god I'm gonna need to have a little lie down first certainly and maybe a little <laughs> bit of therapy <laughs> no I I, I I don't feel like this this journey with these genes is particularly over yet my sense is that um, they've now got a story to tell and you know it is you know part of the uh, I don't really like to use the word indigenous in relation to this country because it's kind—it of, does feel a bit appropriative of, um, the, you know, people who have had a continuous lineage of indigenous wisdom. But we do have traditional wisdom in this country, and this whole process—and that—that tradition was communicated through myth and storytelling, um, and often involving plants. And this feels like a mythic saga this whole last three years. And this is kind of like the, the sort of the prompt for the stories that are going to be told about this deep initiation I've had into regenerative practice, um, both in you know with community and personally. And I think they want to just travel about a bit and tell their story. I'd really like to go around universities and um, show them a exhibit them festivals whatever you like just yeah get in touch because there's as you might have realized there's quite a lot to talk about woven into the jeans
0: it will help you get away from your flax field for a while
1: (laughs) well it's a woad field now i'm not going to be as involved in flax but i am working with um, mark palmer to upscale commercial british indigo production in this country and that's going really well we've just you know we've had our first harvest we've extracted we've dried pigment um and we will be you know selling indigo shortly um so that's great and um you know I think it's you know Patrick when he does come to do his jeans and when we have our first crop of indigo I would hope and he has said he put me down as the first customer so that's great you know that's a route into um industry for for British indigo um there's lots of other developments going on around indigo I I noticed that the what I would call the big boys are very interested in biological lab grown indigo indigo and you know using high technology and technology's cool when it's tempered with a moral compass and I've also got to ask what you're doing to build soil health and biodiversity what does your lab do for that so um that's what we're doing We, we may be taking the uh less commercial and the slower route but that's what we're doing in terms of um trying to uh help people divest from fossil fuel colors
0: Mm. I can support that (laughs) and it will be true natural indigo understood as plant-based indigo not the chemically identical lab-based
1: exactly plants plant wisdom plant spirit (laughs) that's what we need (laughs)
0: there you go (laughs) okay Justine I think this is a good place to stop
1: yeah great thank you
0: Thanks so much for being my guest and um, bye-bye for now. Yeah, thanks.
1: It's been lovely talking to you. Bye.
0: And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee. She's perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest. Just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldresseddad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldresseddad. So, until next week, bye-bye.